Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. This is Anthony Buzzard inviting you again to search the Scriptures with us as we continue with our investigation of Jesus' favorite topic, the Gospel about the Kingdom of God. We've been pointing out that Jesus is presented to us in the Bible as the Jewish Messiah. And that term Messiah involves a promise of world government, of world dominion at the hands of the Messiah. To this great event, the New Testament looks forward on every page. It's at the second coming of Jesus that the expected kingdom of God is to be established upon this earth. Jesus promised his followers, the meek and the humble, that they would have the earth as their inheritance. Matthew 5 and verse 5. And Revelation 5 verse 10 speaks of a time coming when the saints of all the ages and of all nationalities and tongues and races will reign as kings upon the earth. According to Revelation 20 verses 1 to 6, the saints are going to rule with Christ, with the Messiah, for a thousand years. Those who have been beheaded for the sake of the gospel and many others who have been persecuted by a hostile world because of their testimony in favor of the gospel of the kingdom of God, their loyalty to the message of Jesus and the truth of the Bible, those also will be raised from the sleep of death in order to take part in that great kingdom of a thousand years. The millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ, is simply the first stage of the future kingdom of God. And that kingdom of God will continue, in fact, throughout all eternity. There are certain basic and fundamental teachings of the Bible which we must cling to if we're to make sense of the divine records. One of those verses and one of those principal teachings is found in Daniel 12 and verse 2. We read there a grand prediction of the future resurrection of the saints. Many of those, that verse says, many of those who are sleeping in the dust of the ground will awake some to the life of the age to come and others to contempt and shame. That tells us what the dead are doing currently. They're sleeping in the dust of the ground. But that verse also says that the time is coming when they're going to be raised from the sleep of death, resurrected, body and soul together, and given at that time an immortal spiritual body. And by spiritual body we should not think of something which is intangible, or non-palpable, Jesus, you know, returned from death and said, Touch me, I'm not a ghost. And he then proceeded to have a meal by the side of a lake. To be immortal in the Bible, to have a spiritual body, does not mean that you're necessarily invisible or that you cannot be touched. You as a Christian will be recognized for what you are as an individual in the resurrection. That's the beauty of our faith, and that's the uniqueness of the Christian faith itself. Namely, that individuals are not absorbed into some great nirvana in the afterlife. No, they're going to be resurrected from the sleep of death all together in one grand community, and that resurrection will occur, as 1 Corinthians 15:23 tells us, at the second coming of Jesus. It's at that point that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the faithful of all the ages will be raised from the sleep of death, given immortality, and assigned positions of rulership with Jesus in that great future kingdom to be inaugurated with its capital at Jerusalem when Jesus returns in power and glory. These are the fundamental elements of the Christian gospel known 
as it came from the lips of Jesus, as the gospel about the kingdom of God. That very same gospel of the kingdom was relayed by the apostles after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And so in Acts 8.12 we read that when they believed Philip as he was preaching the gospel about the kingdom of God and the things concerning Jesus, they were being baptized, both men and women. The very same gospel persisted throughout the book of Acts. There's only one gospel, and it's the gospel as first preached by Jesus himself and as continued in the preaching of the apostles until the end of the New Testament period. Now, that gospel should not have ceased. There's only one gospel. The gospel of the kingdom should constantly be the saving gospel to which Christians are invited to respond. Unfortunately, much has happened in church history to obscure the simple fact that the Christian gospel is none other than the gospel as Jesus himself preached it. That's hardly surprising, since Jesus is the initiator and founder and prototype preacher of the saving gospel of the kingdom. None of this material would be in any way difficult if Bible readers would begin at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus in order to discover the gospel. Many, unfortunately, begin in the middle of Paul, not realizing that the foundation of the gospel of the kingdom had already been laid. It makes sense that we should begin at the beginning of Jesus' teaching, and the very first command ever given by Jesus was simply this, repent, change your mind, reorientate your belief system and your lifestyle, and believe in the gospel about the kingdom. You'll find that clearly laid out in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, in Matthew 3, verse 2, and in Matthew 4, verse 17, Jesus continued exactly the same preaching of the kingdom of God and its nearness, its approach, exactly the same preaching as John the Baptist had introduced before him. In Luke 4, verse 43, Jesus described the point of Christianity when he defined his own mission with complete clarity. I've been sent, he said, to preach the gospel about the kingdom of God. That's the reason why God commissioned me. Luke 4, verse 43, would that Christians would take that as their definition of gospel preaching and follow Jesus as he commanded and preach the same gospel as he preached. Luke 4 verse 43 is a wonderfully clarifying text shedding a whole lot of brilliant light on the point and purpose of the Christian faith. It is indeed to spread far and wide, to preach everywhere the gospel concerning the Messiah and concerning the gospel of the kingdom of God. It's known as God's gospel in Mark 1, verse 14, Romans chapter 1, and verse 1, and so on. As God's gospel, it's a message which proceeds from the highest authority in the universe. It's God's word to a sick world. God's gospel is God's provision for a lost world. It gives us direction and a sense of purpose and tells us above all what God is working out by way of his grand design on this earth. It tells us of the great secret of God's purpose, namely to establish the kingdom of God through the agency of the Messiah, and that kingdom will be established when Jesus returns in all the power and the glory of the Messiah to establish fair government across our globe. Our biblical documents testify to one supreme fact, and that is that Jesus of Nazareth 
was and is the Messiah, and as the Messiah, he is to be the king of that future kingdom of God to be established in Jerusalem at his return. That's the central point of the Christian faith on the fact of Jesus' messiahship and his approaching rule in the kingdom of God. The whole of the New Testament documents depend. There's an essentially simple idea presented to us in the Bible and particularly in the New Testament. It is simply this. God has sent his son, the Messiah, the king of the coming kingdom. Human beings are put on the alert by the gospel message concerning the kingdom. They are to prepare with all urgency in order to find a place in that kingdom when it comes. At the same time as receiving a position of honor and responsibility in the kingdom, Believers will have conferred upon them the incredible blessing of immortality, life forever. That life can be gained only through resurrection from the dead. It may come as something of a shock to our listeners to know that there's no heaven going on now with immortal souls playing harps in a divine and celestial region somewhere. Heaven at present is the region of God and his angels and the Lord Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father. But human beings have not been admitted to heaven in the present, and they certainly have not been consigned to a burning hell, a burning subterranean hell. Hell, indeed, is part, and a very large part, of the teaching of Jesus. But hell will not begin until the second coming of Christ. It's only then that rewards and punishments are meted out. The expression heaven belongs as a name for the dwelling place of God at present with Jesus and the angels. Heaven is not the designation of the reward of the faithful. The reward of the faithful is called the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. That's to say the kingdom to be manifested and inaugurated when Christ returns in power and glory. There's no contrast between heaven and hell as places of reward and punishment. The contrast in the New Testament is between the kingdom of God and entrance into it, inheritance of it at the second coming, and hell as a place of destruction for the wicked. Both those destinies, on the one hand the kingdom of God, or in contrast hell or hellfire, both those destinies are placed at the second coming of Christ, beyond the resurrection of the dead. They are not facts of the present. There's no burning hell going on now. And there's no heaven as a reward for disembodied souls removed from this earth at present. Heaven and hell, or rather kingdom of God versus hell, are facts about what happens when Jesus comes back to reward the faithful and to punish the wicked. This fact is plainly stated by Jesus himself in Matthew 16, verse 27. The Son of Man, Jesus said, is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and he will then recompense every man according to his deeds. He didn't say that every man would be recompensed for his deeds at the point of his death. He said it's going to happen only when the Son of Man comes in the glory of his kingdom. That's the most important fundamental basic teaching of the Bible, and without such simple information, it's hard to read the Bible with intelligence. Now, it would be reasonable to ask the question, if these things are so, that heaven or the kingdom of God as the reward of the faithful and hell as the place of punishment, 
do not begin until the second coming, how is it that it is so popularly understood that heaven and hell exist right now and that they are states to be achieved at the point of death? The answer to that question lies in the development of ideas following the time at which the New Testament was completed. It was in post-biblical times that the strong influence of Greek philosophy came to bear upon the theology of the church. Jesus and the New Testament writers were Jews, with the exception of Luke, and they thought in terms of Jewish theology. According to the Bible, a man is a whole unit. When he dies, the whole man dies, body and soul together. And when the whole man is resurrected, only then does he gain immortality. The Greek philosophers, however, had a different idea. Their notion, based on ancient Platonism, was that a man consisted of a separable soul which could maintain consciousness and subsist apart from the body as a real person conscious of his or her environment. The immortal soul idea does not find any rooting in the Bible. It stems from Greek philosophy. That notion of a part of man continuing to survive even when the body died is a pagan idea mixed with biblical teaching, but it's become massively popular. It is through ancient Catholicism and through the time of the Reformation, unreformed, that this doctrine of the so-called immortality of the soul persists in Christian and church thinking. We invite you to request from us our free booklet entitled What Happens When We Die. We offer you also our book on the kingdom of God for your further study at home. Join us again as we continue with our investigation of Jesus' favorite topic, the gospel about the kingdom of God.